Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The resurrection of Jesus reminds us actually of several different things. You could think of the moving of this immovable stone from the front of the tomb, which reminds us nothing will be impossible with God. Living footsteps of the Savior through the garden echo the same sentiment that you find there in the green grass or in the glowing sun, which is in a world that dwells in the shadow of death. Life nevertheless prevails. That's something the resurrection tells us. Or even the white linens folded neatly and set in their place are a sort of reflection of the fact that God accomplishes his purposes without fail, neatly, properly, and in order. But there's one resurrective point, so to speak, that we are focusing on today. One thing the resurrection teaches us, and J.I. Packer puts it tersely in his book, Knowing God. He writes, Now, when the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is risen, one of the things it means is that the victim of Calvary is now, so to speak, loose and at large, so that anyone, anywhere, can enjoy the same kind of relationship with him as the disciples had in the days of his flesh. When Christians claim that Jesus is alive, what we are claiming is that he's alive. What we should mean by that term, that Jesus is alive, he's risen, he's risen indeed, what we should mean by that is not just some theoretical concept, but That should be coming from a conviction that because Jesus is alive, he is present. He's here. He's in the world. He's not just absent or distant or gone. Contrary to the odd notions of mediums, sometimes of Roman Catholics, we do not commune in any meaningful way with the dead. Those who have trusted in Christ and have died are in heaven. Those who have not are in hell, but none of them are in your houses. None of them are present in that sense with us, so far as we know from Scripture. And we don't have a kind of meaningful, certainly they dwell in our hearts through our memories of them. Certainly we long to be with them again in heaven if they are believers, but they're not here now. You don't have an ongoing relationship with them. But the same does not hold true for Jesus. It's observable that often we as believers Treat Jesus that way. He's almost like a friend who died, and he's far away in heaven. Certainly, he's cheering us on, but we're kind of waiting till we get to him. And we talked about the power of hope, so there is a sense in which that's true, and I'll talk about that, but that's not entirely true. In one sense, yes, that's true. Jesus is distant. He is far away. You remember when the first disciples stood staring into heaven as Jesus was received behind the clouds and two men in white robes appeared to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was, in fact, taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is true in one sense. Jesus is far away. If he weren't, then none of us would be waiting for his return with eagerness, but we are. So he's there, not here in that sense. But this is only half true. 
And I want to point to the other half because that's not the entire story. Even when Jesus ascended into heaven, that very day, that very moment, you remember some of the last words Jesus told his disciples. Behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And then he left. (laughs) So you see there's something more going on here because the very promise of Jesus before he bodily leaves is that I will not leave. So there is another sense to this. It's strange to say that I'll be with you always. And if by with you, Jesus meant bodily with you, like we experience in our friendships, then Jesus was a liar because he was gone after that. If with you, on the other hand, only meant with you in a sort of sentimental way as a memory in your heart, well, that wouldn't provide very much comfort to them or to us. So what does it mean when Jesus makes this promise to his disciples just before he leaves bodily, I will be with you, I won't leave you. That means something and that's what we're considering. What is that assertion? Last week, we considered what it means to have a friendship with an invisible friend, namely Christ. And We saw that it's not very different, actually, from having a friendship with a visible friend, if you remember. The absence of Christ's body, while something, is not everything. It's not even most of everything. We can have a meaningful, satisfying relationship with Christ right now, as we saw in 1 Peter, that does produce in us not just a little bit of joy, but an inexpressible joy that is full of glory. But we're only going to feel that joy when our love for Christ increases. And our love for Christ increases in part, and this is the argument of this lesson, as we recognize that Christ isn't just far away, But Christ is also right here. He's also with us just as he promised. I I noted last week as well that our relationship with Jesus depends upon words that are spoken or read and actions. Just like your relationships with anyone else depend on those two things. You can see no one's thoughts. You are interacting through their words and through their actions But there is this difference that your relationship with your spouse or your best friend depends on words that are spoken through a bodily mouth or written by a bodily hand or typed and actions that are visible through a body. That's your human friendship. Whereas your relationship with Christ depends on words and actions, but he has left bodily. So those words and those actions are not happening through his body. But rather, as we said last week, and as we are going to consider today, through his sovereign control of everybody, of everything. And then next week, we're going to focus on how he communicates to us through words. How does that element of our relationship with him work? So this week, our focus right now How does Christ, in a real practical sense, interact in your life if you're a Christian, even though he is gone in body? How is he present and how is he working? So how is Christ with us? How can he say to you, I'll never leave you, and then his body goes away? What does that mean? 
And here is the answer, and then I will explain. The answer that I believe I find in Scripture is this, that Christ, though absent bodily, is with you in the Spirit. And that itself can mean two things, so I want to be careful to explain that. Here's the first thing. With you in the Spirit. First thing it can mean, you will remember, here's some theology, okay? You will remember that Jesus when he assumed the body of a human within the womb of Mary, perfectly and mysteriously conjoined two natures together. You realize you and I, we have one nature. We are human beings. We have a human nature. Either your human nature is redeemed to look like Christ or it's fallen if you haven't trusted in Christ yet. But you only have one nature, not two. Christ is the only being who has two natures and not one. For the moment he was conceived in the womb of Mary, Christ, who had always had a divine nature, being God, in some manner beyond our comprehension, began to have also a human nature. And you can try to understand that, say, well, was it like 50-50 or were they like intermixed? It's beyond comprehension. You can't quite figure it out. It's like the Trinity. It's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. But it is a paradox, it is a mystery. So here Christ, as soon as he has a human nature, now has two natures. Why does that matter? Because it helps us to understand the Gospels in a lot of ways. We call this the hypostatic union. There's a big word for you. The reason being in Greek, hypostasis, which we transliterate into English as hypostasis, means subsistence or person. We're saying there's two natures in this one person, this one subsistence. That's hypostasis. And so we say hypostatic in reference to that. Hypostatic union, two natures together. Why does that matter? We can, because of that way of understanding, it starts to make sense of a lot of the things that Jesus did and of the things Jesus does now. So when Jesus is alive on earth and we read of his activities in the gospel, if you were to ask a question like, when Jesus is there walking on the water, is Jesus in one place or is he everywhere? And we can say, Jesus, according to his human nature, is in one place. He has a body. That's the only place the body is. His body's not like everywhere. It's just right there, according to his human nature. At the same time, Jesus never stopped being God, and therefore, God is everywhere. So Jesus is everywhere, according to his divine nature. He's omnipresent. That may seem like, why is that important? It's incredibly important and practical when we come to a subject like the one today where we are asking that exact question, where is Jesus? And we can say, Jesus is truly in heaven at the right hand of the Father interceding on behalf of the saints according to his human nature. Therefore, we as believers are eagerly awaiting his return. We long to, for him to return and take us to be with him bodily according to his human nature. But does that mean Jesus is not in this room right now? It does not mean that he's not in this room. Double negative for you. In other words, it means he is here 
according to his divine nature. So you say, well, so he's 50% here. No, stop trying to understand it like that. He is entirely here. When you leave today and you're driving in your car to lunch or home, Jesus is entirely there with you. He's present according to his divine nature. So that is one way we understand that Jesus is with you in the Spirit. But there is another way warranted by the biblical evidence, and this gets a little tricky, but bear with me. For although we may rightly say that God is here among us, we say that as Christians, and it's true, the Bible speaks in that manner, but the New Testament clearly wants us to understand the presence of God with us specifically as something accomplished through the Holy Spirit who was given on Pentecost. We are trying to strum the chords of infinitude, so it's going to sound a little ugly when we do it, but we're doing the best we can. It's not God's fault. That's ours. But just consider these few lines of Scripture from Romans chapter 8, and I will demonstrate this to you. You, Paul writes, however, notice, notice the description of the Spirit here, okay? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, the Spirit. We say, who is the Spirit? The Holy Spirit. You're in the Spirit. Great. If, in fact, the Spirit of God, okay? Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, God's Spirit, third member of the Trinity, fine so far. Anyone, and this is parallel, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, Spirit of God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Christ, all the same, all listed as doing exactly the same thing. If Christ is in you, although the body's dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So you say, well, now it makes sense. They're all exactly the same. There's no distinction whatsoever. If the Spirit of God, of Christ, of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's the Father, this is the Spirit of the Father, and He's doing something to another member. I thought the Spirit was Christ, but now the Spirit's doing something to Christ, raising Him from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus, that's the Father, from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You see what we're trying to do? It's impossible. This is the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the hypostatic union thrown together. Just some light learning this morning. But the reason this is important to dig into is you see even in this text, even here in this text, As Christians, how are we to understand the presence of Christ with us? On the one hand, we understand it, that he's here in spirit, so to speak, spiritually, invisibly, as God, according to his divine nature. Yet scripture doesn't leave us there because it wants us to understand that the spirit, Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, indwells you and specifically in that manner... Christ is in you. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have Christ in you. 
There is a distinction of persons, but there's such a subsistence, such a singular being within the Trinity that to have the Holy Spirit is to have Christ. And that is why when Jesus is leaving his disciples and they are sad about it, he says, I'm going to leave, they're sad. And he says, I tell you, it's to your advantage that I leave. Why? What he's saying is not that I'm going to go away and be distant and you won't see me anymore like that, but I'm going to leave bodily according to my human nature and then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell within you and by that means I will be with you at all times, no longer restraining any of my divine prerogatives, but exercising all of them as freely as I desire in your life actively through the Holy Spirit. This is confusing to talk about, I understand, but the reason, the berry we're trying to pick from this uh, multifariously leaved bush is we are trying to pick this important concept that Christ is present with you. And you say, well, I thought the Holy Spirit was the one who's with us. Yes, Christ is present with, with you through the Holy Spirit. So Christ is, is here. You can state as boldly as Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. I want you to see that Christ is really, truly, not 50%, but fully in you, around you, just as we think of the Spirit is in us, the Spirit is here, is present as we gather together. Christ is here, the Spirit of Christ. Christ is here, present as well. Someone may point out at this point, it doesn't feel like Christ is here. And that can be true. You know, it doesn't really feel like we're being flung through the galaxy very fast, but in a gravitational sling around the sun. It doesn't feel that way at all. I never wake up and feel that way. But that's just the fact. And similarly, Christ might not feel like he's here. You don't see him. But it's just kind of a fact that he is. He's present. As we said last lesson, faith is the environment in which we love Christ. So I present all of this information not so that you get a big head, but you present the hypostatic union. Why? Because it's something you need to believe. You need to have that conviction. That Christ, according to his divine nature, is with you right now. And the reason you need that conviction is you're not going to have a ton of love for Christ. You will have some. But your love for Christ, it's not fueled by thinking of Jesus as just far distant, far in the future, like a friend who has passed away someday. But your relationship with Christ and that love is fanned. Those embers are fanned into flame when you're with Christ. And the fact is, you are with Christ, but you need faith as the environment to know that. So I'm presenting this information that God may stir faith in us, so you see, wow, when I drove here this morning, I didn't think Christ is with me, and when I drove to lunch, I thought, wow, Christ is with me. And when you drove here, you loved Christ less than when you drove to lunch. See that? That's why we're talking about this. It's a sort of uh, spiritual slap in the face when you recognize that Christ is actually in your life. And that's the reason we're gathered. That's why I'm speaking to stir that up. So, Christ is with us always, just as he promised. That was not a lie. And now the question is, moving 
building on that, okay, he's there. Is he doing anything? When you have friendships with people, if that person was present but never said anything and never did anything and just stood there, totally closed eyes, never did a thing, how far would that friendship go? Not very far. So to stir our love up for Christ, we must not only see him as being present, but we must see him as active in your life. What does it mean that Christ is doing things in your life? For an answer, I turn to our last kind of primary text for today, and it's a fascinating passage. It is one of the last passages that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, very shortly before he died. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You're welcome to turn there if you like. I have it here as well. It's in verses 16 to 18. The sword is awaiting his neck, and it will reach it in a short time. Paul had already stood on trial in Rome, accused by his own kinsmen, the Jews. He appeals to Caesar. It seems like between 1st and 2nd Timothy, he's released for a short time, but now it seems he's back in prison. He has had a trial, and this is his description of that event. And I want you to see what the event would look like if he did not believe Christ was present and active. And what the event looks like to Paul because of that conviction. Hear his report, 2 Timothy 4, starting in 16, talking about that first trial. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Everyone he'd given his life to, they all left. May it not be charged against them. But... That's the sad part, but here's the good part. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message, the gospel, might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued by the Lord from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, not just in this one event and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you understand that at a trial like this, probably everybody else watching the circumstance, if they are unregenerate, see only a lonely man, abandoned by his friends, accused and condemned shortly to death at the instigation of his own countrymen, his own kinsmen, and they're trying to defend himself as one isolated individual against a great Roman Empire. That's the situation. If you're looking at that, just what's visible, that's sad. But Paul is not sad because that's not what he's looking at. He says, the Lord... In this context, and if you want to know why, come ask me after. I don't have time to explain it. But very clearly in this context, Lord means specifically Jesus Christ, the Son, Jesus. The Lord, he says, stood by me when no one else did. I had Christ standing by me. Jesus is in heaven. Yes, but he's here and he stood by me. He's present. But it's more than that. He did something. He not only stood by me, but he strengthened me. That's something, and it's done by an invisible friend, Jesus, present at the trial. 
So he concludes, I was rescued. That's another something. He's rescued from the lion's mouth. And those are the, that's the presence and the activity of Jesus. And Paul sees it, so he's not bummed about this situation. What exactly did Jesus do in this particular circumstance? Well, two things. First, you see here, he does something within Paul. So he's influencing Paul's will. You see that because he strengthened Paul to do what? To proclaim this message boldly and clearly. Why would Paul not have proclaimed the message? Because he'd be weak. What would that mean? It would mean he's timid or he's afraid to do it in this circumstance. And that's how he would be on his own. If it were not the fact that over there's Jesus, over here, it's Jesus standing by him and he does something. He influences Paul's will so that Paul is strengthened and therefore proclaims the message boldly. And Paul sees that as something that Jesus present actually did. He did it in him. So that's happening within him to will and to work for his good pleasure. Christ is active. But that's not it. It's not just that Christ is working within us or within Paul, but there's something more. There's something that's happening outside of Paul. And you see that because Paul is rescued from the lion's mouth, but not only that, ongoing he knows Christ will keep rescuing him from every evil deed. That doesn't mean Paul's not going to be hurt. He's going to be beheaded. He accepted that. He was beaten many times over. That to him was not incompatible or did not in any way disagree with Christ rescuing him. He's thinking spiritually and what that means is that Christ is present in Paul's life and he's not going to let anything outside of Paul happen that Christ knows would be a stumbling block that would spiritually ruin Paul. And for that to be accomplished, Christ must be manipulating things outside of Paul. He's doing a work out here. There are evil deeds and he's rescuing him. Part of that true is that inward strengthening. But think even in this circumstance, there he is and he's going to make this defense. And to him, his success was that he boldly proclaimed the gospel. But you realize even if Paul was inwardly strengthened with confidence to proclaim and he had a sore throat that morning, and he lost his voice, then he would fail. He wouldn't be able to do that. He said, no, Jesus made sure that even though the lion wanted to eat me by putting me in this circumstance and ruining my witness, and there's just a lonely man, and there, no, but Christ steps in and makes sure the gospel goes forth. That Jesus did that, not Paul. And he did that in part by making sure all the physical components or the wills of others, there could have been a rowdy bunch come in and disrupt the setting so that he couldn't proclaim. But Jesus made sure everything outside of Paul was exactly what it needed to be to rescue Paul while he was at the same time working inside him to give him confidence. So you see, Although sometimes it feels like, man, I wish Jesus were just here bodily with me so we could talk and do stuff together. But you see, it is to your advantage that he's left bodily because Jesus is doing stuff together with you a lot more than if he were here bodily. He's doing stuff so much together with you that he's doing stuff 
in you. I can't do stuff in you. He's doing stuff in you. He's doing stuff in everybody around you. And he's working it all together for your good. That's what Jesus is doing in the believer's life. And that is the point of everything in this lesson leading up to now. And it is this, that if you are a Christian, Christ is present with you now. And he's doing stuff in your life. So if you wonder, like, how can I have this meaningful relationship, and you say a relationship more meaningful than any of my other ones, with Christ who's invisible and up in heaven and far away? And the answer is that he's not. He's with you spiritually at present and active. And you still may think that's not quite the same as having a tangible friend. And you're right. It's not the same. It's a lot better to have Christ than to have any number of physical, tangible friends in your life. We read in Ephesians that Christ ascended far above all the heavens, and it wasn't to get away from us. (laughs) That'd be easy to believe, but that wasn't the reason. It actually explains that he might fill all things. So even his leaving was with the intention that he would more fully permeate everything, including everything in your life. I want to move this to a story of St. Patrick. You may be familiar with him. He was a missionary to Ireland, kind of the missionary to Ireland. In the 5th century, so that's in the 400s AD, that's a long time ago. At that time, Ireland was a very pagan nation, and it was ruled by these Irish kings who were receiving their counsel from Druids. And Druids were sort of magic-working intelligentsia. They were well-studied, but they also practiced in magic, maybe the dark arts. Patrick was actually kidnapped from England as a very young boy and made a slave in Ireland, forced to tend pigs, I think. He escaped to the European continent. After several years, he finally returned to his home of England. And you would think, what a relief. But Patrick felt this burden for the Irish people, who had kidnapped him. And so he ended up leaving England a second time to go to Ireland, this time of his own free will to bring the gospel to dark Ireland And there are all kinds of legends where Patrick is pitted against the Druids and having these battles between their magic and his God and what God can do. They are legends. Some are maybe true, some are not. It's very difficult to know at this point. But what we do know for a fact is that Patrick lived an incredibly dangerous life. Daily, he wrote, I expect murder, fraud, or captivity, meaning he could be made a slave again. Probably meant by that. But at the same time, Patrick lived with this vivid sense of the presence of God. He was a simple man. He was not incredibly educated. He felt embarrassed about that. He didn't know as much as the Druids. But he had this sense that God was with him. And by extension, that Christ was present in his life doing things. So the most famous of all the writings attributed to Patrick, I believe, is called the Lorica. It's also called Patrick's Breastplate. It's just this not very long prayer. We don't know if Patrick actually wrote it, but scholars very much agree it's reflective of Patrick's attitude and his life. So it's something he would have written if he didn't actually. 
And there's one part of the prayer that reads like this. Here's Patrick in Ireland, surrounded by enemies, powerful demonic forces probably at work, always subject to the possibility of death. And his prayer goes, Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. That is a summary of the heart we are trying to foster. The Christ is present. We may not face the same dangers Patrick faced, but we face very real spiritual dangers. There's the materialism of America always pulling on your heart. It's always pulling on your heart. How are you going to stand against that? Your co-workers do not want to hear the gospel, not most of them. And for you to give it, that's embarrassing sometimes, and you feel like you can't. How are you going to do that? You've tried and you failed. How are you going to do that? You're going to do that because when you're there in your cubicle, Christ is in you. Christ is with you. He's on your right hand. He's, on your le- he's above you and beneath you. He's everywhere around you. And He's working not only in you, but He's working in your coworkers. He's doing things. When they look at you, Christ in that eye. Not only because you should be reflecting Christ, but because Christ is there influencing them. Christ in that ear. Christ is present. He's active. He's working on your will, the wills of others. To believe that Christ is present and to believe that he's active, it matters. It matters to believe those things. An awareness of Christ is born in us and of his activity, when we choose to see in the ordinary happenings that are going to happen to you Wednesday, whatever's on your calendar, there are going to be some really ordinary things happening in your life. And you can view those ordinary things as just physical, material, ordinary things. And Wednesday will probably be boring. But you're only seeing half the picture Because on Wednesday, Christ, if you're His, He's with you. He's doing something. Wednesday's not a wasted day. Like, oh, just get through Wednesday to get to Thursday or Friday or Saturday or 10 years from now. It's not a wasted day. It has every bit as much of a purpose in the intentionality of Christ in your life as any other day of your life has. He means to use it because He's there and He's doing something. It's just we're not always seeing Him do stuff. So if you live Wednesday as if Christ isn't there, it doesn't make Him not there. It just makes you not happy. It just lessens your love for Christ. So what we want to work in ourselves is an environment of faith by which we see on Wednesday, on Wednesday when, for example, you get up in the morning and you try to get in the Word and you're expecting it to not go so well. Sometimes it doesn't and it's early and you're exhausted. And you know what? It goes so well and you learn from Scripture something that stands out to you remarkably and your time in prayer, five, ten minutes maybe, but it's just sweet. And you could see that as the consequence uh, 
of the nutrients of your breakfast. You could do that. And a good cup of coffee. And you know what? Those might have had an influence. But if that's the end of what you see, then that's the end of your enjoyment of Christ. But if in that moment you see through the breakfast and through the coffee and through a million other things that I can't see, Christ himself with me worked because he wanted to give me the good gift of seeing him more clearly and enjoying him. That's the awareness we want to foster on Wednesday morning. It changes the experience. Okay, later on Wednesday, you go into work, you come out of work on your lunch break, say, and to your surprise, there is a nice stripe of the paint from someone else's car that's lovely smeared across the side of yours. shouldn't say lovely, but there it is, okay? It's smeared across the side of yours. And you could think in that moment, right? This is the conjoining of poor driving and a lack of conscience. How could someone do this to me? And if that's what you think, you will be very sad. It will not be a very fun experience for you. You will be counting up how much money you're about to lose and fixing that, okay? But there's an alternative that sees the situation more clearly. It's not a fairy tale. You can see that and say, well, that would not have happened if Christ had stopped it. So he intentionally has allowed or brought this into my life. Why? I mean, he's with me right now and he has brought this about and I know it's for my good and he's using it in his ongoing work in my life. That is the pulse of the loving heart that knows its prince is near. This then is how Christ acts in our lives. He's present in the spirit. He's working within us. He's working around us, above us, right, left, everywhere and there are no limitations to his activity. Now, of course, in conclusion, this does open a final question, which was brought to me and is a good one, which we will be considering, which is, there are some very unpleasant and not nice things that happen in our lives. And if we are to understand those as in any way coming from Christ, won't we conclude that Christ, though he's doing stuff in our lives, is doing mean things? He's just unkind. He's not kind to us. Won't that be the conclusion we make from those? Next week, we're going to consider not only the actions of Jesus, we're moving now to the words that Jesus communicates to us to explain the actions he is working in our life. So let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for allowing us to take time to consider your presence with us, and I Thank you that it is real. And it was not more real for Patrick, for Elijah, or Paul. It's as real for us, your people, as it has been these 2,000 years of Christianity, that you are with your people. You are with us. You lead us. Help us to hold to this most simple tenet of our faith, but to hold to it with a conviction that that touches the reality of where we live our lives. I pray Wednesday would be different for every one of us, that we would choose to see in the things happening in us and around us the hand of our Savior for our good. So please promote in us this awareness that we call faith so that we may see you 
active in our lives. And in seeing you, may love you. And in loving you, may experience a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray.